To women with books. I'm your host, author Lindsay Emery. This is it, you guys. The last episode of season three. I know it's a little weird to end it right as 2019 starts. It feels really off to me, but that's just the way the episodes fell out this season. Longtime listeners will know that a quote season in women with books land is sort of arbitrary. It's mainly a mechanism for me to wrap my brain around production and scheduling. Since it's just me, myself, and moi here, I get way too overwhelmed if I think about producing a podcast in perpetuity, especially as I am also a full-time author. So, I mean, if you think about it, me dividing up the podcast into seasons is kind of like me dividing up a book into chapters or maybe dividing up a writing career into books. I mean, it's just a smaller nugget that I can kind of deal with and plan out, plot, if you will, rather than, oh, I'm going to be a writer and I'm just going to sit here and write words until I die. Um, (laughs) I I need a little bit more structure than that. Um, That being said, as I've done before, I am going to take a little break between the seasons to get organized, evaluate, see what needs to be changed, plan ahead the next steps, what guests am I going to have on, what's my format going to be like, how many episodes can I fit into my life. As always, if you have suggestions about guests, topics, whatever, please let me know. I'm constantly changing things up, so I really don't mind if you say, hey, you should change this up because I... If you think I should, then I I will listen to you. I might not agree, but I will probably agree that something needs to be changed because I feel like this, this format, um, you know, I I can change up things up here. It's just me. I get to make the decisions. Oh, um, I'd love to know about your favorite episodes. Uh, it's hard in podcasting world because we don't have a lot of data about, what people like other than the number of downloads. So just because an episode has a lower or higher download number, I mean, I guess I could read into that and say maybe that guest is more popular, or it could also be maybe I released that episode at a time when more people were listening to podcasts, or maybe there, the podcast was mentioned on another website and a bunch of, I got a bunch of random hits or downloads from that. Um, I don't know. I I don't want to read too much into that. So if you have strong opinions or have a strong favorites, hit me up. I'm totally cool with that. And I would love to talk to you. Speaking of strong opinions, if you haven't already, another thing you could do is take a moment and leave a review for this podcast wherever you download it. I've said it before, but really, guys... The only reason why reviews matter to me here or any place else is because it does impact your uh, opportunities, shall we say. Um, I have had publicists say to me, well, you don't have enough enough reviews for such and such guest. And uh, you know that drives me crazy, but it's... And it's so dumb because the reviews, and I don't even know where all to look for them. That's the other thing is podcasting is spread out so many places. When I say leave a review wherever you download it, I really don't know where that is. We don't get that data. I know like the two main places I get data from. Actually, I only get data from really one place. And then like my, the place where I send my podcast out, it doesn't, divide things up like so I don't know who's getting it from Google Play and who's getting it from Stitcher maybe there's other ways to figure that out and I'm just not technologically savvy enough to figure that out I don't know so wherever you are leave a review but that's the thing is that the publicists who are saying you don't have enough reviews they don't know where y'all are listening either so I don't even know where they're getting this from anyway 
it's so dumb because again, the reviews, if they're spread out all over the place, are like one tiny percentage of my total downloads. And uh, I just don't have time to chase all it down. I don't care that much because I see that people are listening. People tell me they like the podcast. That's all I really care about. Um, I don't know. The only thing that review number actually measures is the level of enthusiasm for me begging for reviews, which I'd hate to do. I really just... (laughs) It's like this vicious circle. I, I hate begging for reviews, so I don't get a lot of them, which is fine with me because I kind of hate it. Um, anyway, maybe it does measure your enthusiasm. I don't know. But I think like every episode out of 10, I need to ask. So <laughs> if you listen and you think I'm doing an okay job and you want me to keep going, leave a review, please that's all I can do. I appreciate you. I see that you're coming back and that's all at the end of the day. That's good enough for me, but also leave a review. All right. If you haven't noticed, I'm going to start putting a list of all the book recommendations we talk about. I'm going to include that into the newsletter. So head on over to womenwithbooks.com or check out the show notes to subscribe to the newsletter and get those links sent directly to your inbox so you don't have to rewind to catch what we're saying, what the title is. Is that person's name Armstrong Jones or Jones Armstrong? I know what you're, we all listen to podcasts when we're doing other things. We're walking, we're walking the dog, we're cooking, we're, you know, doing spreadsheets at our day job. Whatever it is, I get it. So, I'm helping you out. I am sending the books recommended in the newsletter. All you have to do is just sign up for it. Good? Good. All right. Now, on to my guest. She's a very, very dear friend and a very talented writer. She's been on the podcast before, but Julia Kelly's historical fiction debut, The Light Over London, is out now. And everyone needs to read it, full stop. This is something that is great for book clubs. It's great for your mom, your grandma, your auntie, you, your babysitter, the teachers, uh, your dad, your grandpa. I mean, I can keep going. Um, yes, it's about wartime, uh, but it's also about friendship and love and courage and the contributions of women uh, in their country. This one specifically focuses on uh, England in World War II. And it's just a tremendously wonderful story that I know you're going to want to read and talk about with other people. So, Go read The Light Over London after you listen to this podcast. I love you. Thank you for season three. And here's Julia Kelly. Welcome to Women With Books. I have a repeat guest here today, Julia Kelly. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking before I just hit <laughs> Always. start, so I'm not really <laughs> sure where to start with this. Um, but you are, have been on the podcast before, and so much has happened since we last talked. Was that January, February? I think it was January, maybe came out in February. Yeah, it was crazy. It's been 2017. It's been such no, a... 2018. No, 2018. what year is it? <laughs> uh, I don't even know anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been such a short and long time at the same time, and it's been wild how many things have happened in between so yeah so it's november of 2018 now and um you have a new book coming out in january of 2019 which i think is when i'll release this um or in december yeah we'll we'll just we'll talk it'll be exciting (laughs) surprise um, for all yeah i think that's why it's throwing me off i'm like i think this will be encompassing like three years worth of effort but when you were here (laughs) earlier in 2018 you were here on the podcast discussing your um, matchmaker was it matchmaker of edinburgh that's right series yes which was historical romance but i'm trying to remember i should have gone back and listened um 
I don't think we officially talked about, or maybe it hadn't been announced yet, but that at the time you were writing and editing your debut historical fiction, The Light Over London. Yeah, that's right. So I was, um, I think, hinting that I was doing something, but the <laughs> announcement hadn't come out yet, I think. And um, so it was all very, I was being very coy. So you are another, because when I, I, when I was prepping, I'm sorry today. I need some more tea. I am actually drinking (laughs) Earl Grey tea right now in your honor. Yay. um, Because we are going to be talking a lot about London. Um, Yeah, I was, when I was preparing for this episode today, I was thinking about my conversation with Chanel Cleeton because similar to you, she was a historical and contemporary romance author who has moved over into historical women's fiction, or what do you like to call it? So in the U.S., I call it historical women's fiction. In the U.K., they don't really have quite that same uh, distinction in the bookstores. So I, I fall under romance, but romance is a little different here. You get a lot of historical fiction in romance that's not not necessarily it's more romantic fiction as opposed to the happily ever after romance so it's it's a little bit of a gray area that's really interesting because and I'll tell you why because I was thinking again when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about so you're well hold on let me not push that far because your new <laughs> book the light over london is about world war ii in yes. london and you want to tell us a little bit about it sure so um it is a dual timeline book which is something i've always really loved reading so i wanted to take a shot at writing it um so the contemporary timeline starts with a woman whose name is Kara, and she is a divorcee um <laughs> if anybody calls them that anymore uh and basically she's putting her life back together after after a really painful divorce. Um, she also lost her parents around the same time. So she's gone through this massive life transition and she's resettled in basically her university town, which is very similar to Oxford, um, but is not Oxford. And uh, she is working for um, an antiques dealer. And the antiques dealer is um, somebody who goes in and clears out estates after people die. So you call him, he goes and assesses the value of the contents of the house. So her role is to assist him with that. And as part of that, um, she finds a uh, a box and inside the box is a World War II era diary as well as some other things that are sort of um, the artifacts of a relationship. And there's a photo with initials on it, but no indication of who the woman actually is. So it sends her on this um, kind of this journey to figure out not only who the author of the diary is and who the woman in the photo is, but also... Um, the woman in the photo is wearing a uniform that uh, for the ATS, which was the women's auxiliary branch of the uh, British Army, and that that also is the uniform that her grandmother wore during World War II. So she was also an ATS girl, and um, it sort of sends her on this whole path. And and there is conveniently a um, very good-looking uh, historian who lives next door to her, uh, who's a university lecturer, and so he kind of helps her. And there's a bit of a romance there, um, but. A lot of the book is really set in, in World War II, and it's this story of um, the girl in the diary. Her name is Louise, and Louise is um, kind of swept off her feet by a wartime romance. Uh, there's a man, it, she lives, she's from Cornwall, and in Cornwall there were all these uh, Air Force bases. And so um, she meets a, an RAF pilot named Paul, and Paul sort of sweeps her off her feet, and when he um, is dispatched and has to leave, it sort of sets into motion uh, these various events in her life. And so she joins the ATS and she becomes what's called an ACAC girl. So these were the women who were um, assigned to the Royal Artillery and they operated the um, anti-aircraft guns that would protect various strategic locations, including London. So Louise is sent to London and sort of is her sort of growing up and coming of age story um, and the development of her relationship with Paul and all of these things that happen. Um, And there's also, because I I do love writing about female friendships, there's a very strong female friendship at the center of her story as well, but all the women in the the ACAC unit who are bonded together. So you get the sort of interweaving of both of these stories and um, kind of the the unpeeling of of secrets and, and different things that pop up in these in these women's lives so um yeah that's that's the light over london it is 
so good. And I just realized <laughs> when I was listening to you talk about it is that this might be very hard for me to talk about without spoiling it. So it's a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, we, we might have to stay to a certain percentage of the book. <laughs> I know. And and I think that after people read this book, um, and it's coming out in January, what's the date again? In yeah, so January? January 8th in the U.S. So after January 8th in the U.S., um, you're going to have to have like a Facebook group or something open for people to talk <laughs> about this because I was just thinking like, oh, I want to talk about that. Oh, I want to talk about that. But I can't because there's just enough with you. Like you said, with the dual timelines, it's almost like there's a, a mystery that's unraveling and you don't get to see the full picture of the whole story until the like the very last couple of chapters, really. And um, but there's still so much more. And um I don't know. I, I want more of the story and I'll have to tell you about it after we're off. Cause I'm like, <laughs> the we'll story, made, I know the story. I was like, Oh, please write that next. Please write this story next. And well, um, it's, it's funny you say that because I actually wrote sort of a, accidentally wrote a two-part epilogue <laughs> specifically <gasps> for the historical section of this. Did I know this? No. No, I don't think you oh. did because we cut it. Um, so I had a call with my with my editor and she was like, look, I love it, but I really think that we need to stop the book at this one particular place. And I was like, no, actually, I think you're completely right and I'll just use it as newsletter bonus material. And mm. she was just like, I love authors who think like marketers. Because <laughs> I was like, yeah, it, it, would, it was better for the book, but it is also something where if somebody's curious, if somebody wants to know what happens after the book ends and kind of continue on that story, I'm more than happy to give them that. So, um, yeah, so that does exist. Um, okay. So I'll be I'll be releasing that in I think it's late January and March. People will get okay. those parts. We will put that in the show notes because as people find this podcast from January on. Um, they will want to get that. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it makes me so. Okay, we'll have to talk about that later. But where did you get the idea? Because this is obviously this book. When you read it, is very. I mean, I'm assuming it's factual and you know perfectly researched. Where did you get the idea for this book? <laughs> well, I, I will say a lot of it is based in fact, but there are some moments of artistic license. So, for instance, the the place where Louise is dispatched um, and where her unit is sent in London doesn't exist, but it's modeled after a place. So I live south of the river in London, and it's modeled after a place uh, sort of a little east of me that did exist. It's right across from a uh, city airport now. Um, so I... I moved to London in May of 2017, and I started writing this book uh, first week of October in 2017, very specific because my friend got married right before it, and I was kind of, I was really excited about her wedding and going through everything, but I was also really, really wanted to sit down and start writing this because the idea had solidified. Um, so I was, I was itching to get, uh, you know, fingers on keyboard. Um, but I was reading a lot about World War II because when you live in London, and especially when you live where I used to live, uh, which is near Green Park, there are a lot of memorials and there's just a lot of sort of everyday reminders of what happened in World War II. And you walk around London and if you sort of know what to look for, you can you can almost tell where there were bomb sites and architecture went up that doesn't fit in with the rest of the neighborhood. So you'll be walking through these really historic parts of London and suddenly there will be sort of a 60s brutalist building there. And that's almost always because it was developed after a bomb fell on that particular area. So you're sort of constantly immersed in a lot of these things. And my era had been uh, Victorian England when I was in Victorian Scotland when I was writing um, historical romance, but I had become really interested in World War II. And so I picked up a book um, specifically about women in the auxiliary branches of the major branches of the armed forces um, and started reading it. And one of the women happened to be a gunner girl, in an ACAC girl in, uh, in the ATS. And so it went through her training. It went through everywhere that she was, um, that she was assigned um, for, for that training. And then it went through her experiences as she... Um, as she was a gunner girl and she was in completely different places than London, but sort of that sense of what it was like as people are shooting at you, trying to shoot out the spotlights that you're using to track planes and also trying to shoot at you because you're firing at them as well. Um, 
that adrenaline and all of the experiences and then all of the kind of really fun camaraderie that came along with it too. These girls worked weird hours. <laughs> they were, you know, on night shifts and they were freezing all the time and they were also incredibly talented, really, really skilled. A lot of them were very um, perceptive at, at, you know, calculations and, and math. And uh, so you have these really intelligent women who essentially tested into this particular skill in uh, the ATS. And so it just felt like it was it was really an, an area that I hadn't experienced. Uh, I hadn't read much around that before. Um, and I just thought it was fascinating and thought it would make a great story of sort of an unusual thing that a woman did in World War II. Well, it does make a wonderful story. And um, you have a lot of the research that you've done. You've posted it on your blog as the light seekers. Yeah, that's right. And um, was that research you did after the fact, or you just keep doing it? Or <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit of both. Um, I have always been fascinated by women in history who didn't necessarily have their story told the first time around, um, but who are and, and were sort of discovering them and realizing how significant they were. Um, so, for instance, uh, one of my favorite, actually, this is a weird thing to say, but one of my favorite obituaries is um, for Claire Hollingworth, who was the female correspondent, um, British correspondent, who broke the story of World War II. She was the first to report uh, tank movement and troop movement on the border, um, Germany invading Poland. And um, she also phoned in, you know, the the first bombings. And, and uh, she really was an absolutely incredible woman um, with a fascinating, fascinating life story. Um, and then there are, there are all sorts of women who I sort of knew about a little bit um, because of either, you know, familial history or um, just watching TV programs and reading news reports and things like that. Um, and it's just been really a lot of fun to explore those different women. So, for instance, um, women motorcycle dispatch drivers uh, were typically recruited um, to ferry messages around um, when communication was either unreliable or deemed to be insecure. Um, and so, or unsecure, rather. And so they recruited all these women from local... They're very motor- insecure as well. Yeah, they they exactly. weren't sure about their uniforms and their, how their hair looked. Exactly, and- exactly. <laughs> you know, those motorcycle boots. Um, but they, they recruited these women from local circuit competition riding. And I, I think most people, myself included, don't think about women in the early, you know the late 30s being motorcycle drivers and um, really talent. I mean, these women were sometimes dodging bombs on the roads. Like, it was, it was crazy. Um, and so getting to tell those stories has been really, really fun. And the archived photos are fantastic. And there's just, there's such a rich, um, there's such a rich oral history here because there have been a lot of projects to try to make sure that these stories are preserved. Um, and so there's been a real effort to interview uh, World War II veterans, people who lived through the war here on the home front, you know, the land girls. Some of my um, aunts and uncles were evacuated from Liverpool as very young children because they, they sent children away from major urban centers so that they would be protected, um, you know, if bombing started to happen, which it did. Um, so it's just, there's, there's a huge amount of information and um, resources out there, and, and it's such a joy to get to read through those things, and in some cases, watch video and listen to people telling their own stories. It's really kind of a treat, especially when, you know, I, I did most of my research in university in the 19th century, and you don't get that same type of, of uh, documentation. Well, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your Lightseeker series. Um, it's the series of blog posts is just really interesting, and it it whets your whistle <laughs> for more information. <laughs> um, because, like you said, that motorbike one, or if the female spies and mm-hmm. and diplomats, and um, it's just the one that you said about the the um, ah, the journalist who broke the news. Yeah, Claire Hollingworth, and um, it's so. Between that and reading your book, I I just want to know more. Um, And so I did have a question about something that kind of came up in the book. There were some comments made when um, the ACAT girls reported for duty, I guess. Mm -hmm. And there were some comments made about, well, this was so-and-so's harebrained scheme to get women in the military. So what was it about the British war effort? Was there an 
overarching strategy to recruit women because of their experiences after World War One, or did they like was there anyone really thinking about it or was it just kind of catch as catch can so it sort of depends on where in the war you're talking about or when rather you're talking about so um before 19 december 1940 i think it is um conscription was not required for women after that women of a of a certain age sort of i think it's 18 to 20 i want to say 26 or 28 who were single did not have children um were required to serve um and then the more and more women were pulled in just like more and more men were pulled into um into service uh compulsory service so the book is set in uh the early part of ni- the 1940s when um when the, when it kicks off at least and so it was not required that um that louise would join up um she would have been a volunteer and um I think for a lot of women, it represented, um, first of all, you know, an idea of this is something that that I feel very strongly about. I want to make sure that I'm doing my part. There was some glamour towards it, um, especially for the Navy's auxiliary service, uh, the Wrens. They had beautifully fitted, you know, gorgeous uniforms, and it was sort of it was very posh being a Wren. Um, a lot of you know the aristocracy and the, the landed gentry. A lot of their daughters went into uh, that service, and so it was you know, it's funny. Sorry to interrupt you, <laughs> but but when you said when you said that in your book, I realized, and you said that in on your blog as well about the wrens being the posh, cute ones, basically. Yeah, because um, <laughs> those are the ones that kept coming up in Rosamund Pilcher books. Oh it, yes, and so I they would I say, love they the would shell talk seekers. about that. Yes, they would yeah, talk about. Oh, she, she tries a wren to be a wren. They look so cute. <laughs> yeah, she tries to be a wren in uh, the shell seekers, and for I don't remember if she. There was something called Para Eleven in the ATS, where it basically meant you got pregnant and had to had to go. That was not allowed. I think that's what happens in the Shell Seekers to the um, to the mother when when oh, they're telling. Yeah. yeah, she's for whatever reason she has to leave the Wrens, <laughs> and she's like, "Well, no loss because I really didn't enjoy it." So, um, but yeah, so you had different women joining for different reasons, and there were absolutely campaigns. And in fact, the ATS. It's interesting that you bring up that part about all this, you know, hairbrain scheme of having women, you know, on the air-to-aircraft guns, it was a really big deal. People really, first of all, their parliament declared that women could not be in active combat, which meant that no woman could actually pull the trigger on one of these guns, but they could do everything else. So they did everything from, you know, spotting the planes that they were going to shoot down to, to you know, aiming the gun to setting the fuse to doing everything short of actually pulling the trigger. And that was done by a male RA uh, uh, gunner. And so, um, you know, you really do have women, what it was called, I think I have a postcard of a poster that was created that was something like free up, a, free up a man for service. And so the idea was that women would come in and do some of the jobs that they weren't active combat, but they would allow a man to go and serve on the front lines. And so you have this sense of sort of responsibility and also for some people glamour and a sense of adventure. You could be dispatched to, you know, who knows, you could be sent to, um, uh, you know, North Africa, you could be sent to somewhere in Europe, you could be sent to Glasgow. I mean, it's, it's a well, lot of well, variation for, in there. For Louise in the book, she was excited to be sent to London because she'd never been there before. Yep. That was exactly. She'd never left her. Cornwall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she dreamt of bigger things like shooting down German planes. Yes, exactly. There you go. Doing her bit. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I, I guess recently because of the... Um, the centennial of Armistice Day mm-hmm. uh, of World War One. I've just been thinking a lot about that, about the incredible sacrifices that the British have made in both wars, and um, that really, to the way that the country had to come together so soon after World War yeah. One. I mean, not that, of course, U.S. fought in both of the wars as well, but it just did not have the same impact across the ocean that it did there in London. And, and the, um, really the imminent threat. I mean, it, Germany is right there. There's yeah. not that much separating England from the continent. And it really, I can't even imagine how terrifying that was. Because I think the early part of the book where they are, where Louise is still in Cornwall, and I think you might have had something there about 
drawing the drapes or something. And I thought, you know, it's literally true. They could have woken up one morning and seen German yep. boats on the beach, and then they were done. I guess also because of the um, Guernsey sweet potato mm-hmm. <laughs> literary Which society movie, too. I haven't too. read or watched it, and I need to <gasps> I need to get on that. I've heard it's I, great. I haven't read it either. I don't remember. I think it, the book came out at a time when I was either... I don't know, having children or in law school or otherwise busy. <laughs> but, um, I think that um, the movie was fantastic. You definitely need to see the movie. I'd like to. And, yeah, that's on yeah. the list. It would be part of your research. Exactly. Then you can knock off your Netflix for tax purposes. Do they have there that? There we go. <laughs> I pay taxes in so many places. I'm sure we could get it as a write-off somewhere. <laughs> um. Did Queen Elizabeth really serve as a mechanic in World War II? I just have she, to ask that. Absolutely. Always got to get my royal question in. So it was a topic of much conversation, which branch of the service she would go into, and she became an ATS girl. Uh, a lot of people thought she would end up um, in the Wrens, because again, they were the posh, fashionable ones, but she ended up in the ATS. Was that, na- that was Navy, too, That was right? Navy, yeah, exactly. And, and the royal family has had, well, her family had a long history of being in the Navy. Exactly. Was her father in the Navy? Yeah, I believe that's right. And um, yeah, so she actually ended up in the Army's branch instead. And so um, absolutely, I think she entered in, was it 43? And uh, she, you know, there's the famous story of her um, as a much older lady uh, jumping in the front of a of a car with uh, with a uh, a world leader uh, who couldn't believe that he was being driven around by by the Queen of England at high speed and in her Land Rover. So, um, yeah, she was apparently quite a quite uh, quite something behind the wheel and and uh, did her bit. Well, when you said that about um, children being sent to safe places, I remembered that as well, that mm-hmm. uh, Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret, didn't they suggest that they would send them to Canada? It and was suggested that they get them out of the country, and they, I, I believe the royal family was pretty resolute that they were going to stay because the people of Britain had to stay. They Actually, the royal family is fascinating during World War II. Um, if you ever get a chance to do some research about it, I believe the Queen was very intentional about what she wore uh, because she never is portrayed as wearing black uh, in press photos when they went out to visit bomb sites and things like that. Um, so she she wanted to portray a very particular image of Britain, um, and and it was not going to be a dour, somber image. Um, Buckingham Palace was bombed several times, and wow. um, they had a bunker, and uh, you know they they absolutely you know sheltered just like everybody else did. And obviously, life is a little different if you're the king and queen. But um, that being said, uh, they were they were very um, clear about what their responsibility was, and I think it's a really interesting period of time for the monarchy because people do look to that um, sort of that figurehead for to take their cues. I think. Yeah. I mean, if I think of myself, you know, I'm a mom. And if I think of myself as a mom in England at that time, seriously, contemplating what would happen if Germans showed up on my high street. Mm-hmm. And then I can look at Queen Elizabeth there going, nope, my, me and my daughters are staying here in Canada. Or no, we're staying here, not going to Canada. That would give me some solace, to be honest. And I would probably also say, I really don't mind if you go to Canada. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. You know, my um, my family's from Liverpool, and, and my mother is the youngest of the family, and so she absolutely had brothers and sisters who were evacuated um, to, you know, rural areas. Uh, my uncle Nick, family legend has it, was born uh, during one of the London Air Raid, uh, London Blitz strikes. Uh, and, you know, so it, it absolutely, it's, you know, it's a very... It, it's easy, I think, sometimes to think of history as being this very distant thing that we study and, and it feels very separate from who we are. But um, again, I, I find it really striking to think about how my street absolutely could have been bombed. And it wasn't because the architecture is all, you know, unless somebody did an incredible job restoring a house, which I, I would be surprised. Um, but you know, my, my life, I go to, I go to work and, and, you know, go out and do all these things in London. And, um, thinking about that in the context of something that didn't happen that long ago and really was just 
absolutely, you know, devastating and could have could have completely devastated the city. Um, it's it's really kind of sobering and humbling also at the same time. So true. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about that's also mentioned in your book, and we kind of briefly touched about it, was the different treatment for women in the services. Um, do you think that that changed post-war you know, how do you think that changed post-war treatment of the sexes in, in Britain and, um, and in the military there? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, it's interesting. Women's auxiliary branches remained for a very long time after the hmm. war. Um, in fact, I think the ATS may have stayed until the 70s or 90s. And again, this is where it's been a while since I've looked up that stat. But um, <laughs> We're not much, writing about the 70s. <laughs> I, I'm not writing about it. I moved on to something else. So, um, But, you know, it much longer than you would think, especially given um, sort of all the different social movements that were happening. But I think that the single biggest thing for people post-war was really I think it knocked out a lot of that last um, feeling of, you know, women not being able to work outside the home and things like that. And, and there absolutely were women who were working in the 1930s before the war broke out. Um, and there were career women and there were always exceptions, but it becomes more and more socially acceptable. And, and to be quite honest, Britain changes economically and it requires women to be able to work outside the home because it's very difficult to sustain um, a standard of living without having you know an income uh, or two incomes uh, for some families and so it's just you really see a change in the social order you see a change in you see changes start really start to to come up in terms of you know the class system and this is the interwar period I think begins a lot of it but post World War II you also see really the dramatic shift away from these huge houses and the aristocracy and the landed gentry wielding a huge amount of uh, social and economic power because of um, because of their status and the world just changes Britain becomes a completely different country um, especially in the the 60s and the and the 70s um, and so I think World War II really if it doesn't kick it off it it's a huge catalyst for change um, which is very positive for women, I think, uh, uh -huh. because I like being able to work and support myself and have my own, <laughs> you know, my own living and live in a flat that I love and, and all those things. And that just wouldn't have been possible, um, you know, if if I was Louise Keene in uh, 19, 1939, 1940. Um, so, yeah, it's hugely important. So I guess the other thing I was curious about um, is so in your in the book, the current day uh, character, Kara. Kara? Yes. Kara? I she, go back and forth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she um, is in antiques, as you said. Yes. And um, there are some very specific things about antiques. And I was wondering, because as, as your friend, I'm like, I don't know that does Julia know this much about antiques, or did you have to research that as well? I have antique aspirations. Uh, <laughs> it was so, really fascinating stuff. I almost wanted like um, pictures of what you were talking about. I know. So I, I know. Could learn I, about it. I do have some it needs on to be an illustrated guide to light over London. I know companion copy. Um, <laughs> so I do have some on Pinterest, but I I was very bad about continuing to pin things. So I don't know if I should be really uh, bragging about that. Um, no. So I I love. Um, I grew up in Southern California, um, and I grew up, my, my first home that I remember is, uh, still is, it's still around, it's a craftsman uh, bungalow. And so I love that uh, arts and crafts style, and it's a very American, and this particular house is a very Californian style of bungalow, but I've always sort of loved that, that whole look and aesthetic, and my mother and father both love William Morris, and so it's sort of always been something that's been around, and um, I, so I have a couple of books. I'm actually looking at them right now. And um, a lot of the house that, that Kara goes into is um, that sort of 19th century arts and crafts style furniture that she that she sees pop up. And the reality is there's just a lot of it over here still. If it's not, you know, a major maker, um, you can get the stuff like ridiculously cheap at auction. And in fact, I know that because my parents... <laughs> My parents are, have become absolute fiends at the local auction house, which is quite a big auction house in the East Midlands. And um, so they've turned me on to taking a look at the catalog. And you can get, you know, 
Georgian tables, dining tables for 60 pounds. My parents called me up the other day and they said, oh, you're never going to believe what we got at auction. And I said, okay, what do you, what did you get? And they said, well, we got, we got four paintings. Do you want to know how much they cost? I was like, okay, tell me how much they cost. And they're like, with VAT, which is our tax, 132 pounds. And I was like, okay. And they went, and they're all 19th century and they're all signed. And I was just like, okay, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> like, that's, oh. that's like, less than 40 pounds of painting it was it was about 40 pounds yeah uh it was ridiculous my mother was like i'm so happy with this 25 pound one of a lovely walk through and it's beautiful these beautiful oil paintings that if you saw it in the u.s you just sit there and be like i I can't get this anywhere else i want to go to those places i do too apparently the auction is fantastic um they watch it online and they move things through like they move something like something crazy like 900 pieces in an auction it's insane it's at the rate of like 45 45 seconds a piece um so they become these like auction fiends <laughs> and i feel like i feel like i'm on antiques roadshow or antiques road trip or something like that um which are two different shows here well we briefly talked about it because you were talking about genre and the differences between genre here and in the UK with historical fiction and historical women's fiction. Uh-huh. And I was thinking a lot about that when I was kind of prepping for this episode, because again, I was thinking about when I talked to Chanel Clayton and about how I think that a lot of the historical women's fiction stuff has kind of grown from there not being a space in American historical romance for some of these stories, mm-hmm. um, because they're telling stories that are deemed too recent, like World War II, or too, quote, uh, exotic, perhaps, like Cuba. Um, But I think that it's still the same place as maybe that you are seeing in the UK, where it's romance, because all these stories have some kind of romantic interest in them. Yes. Um, So anyway, I don't know why. (laughs) Well, it's, it's funny you mention that, because one of the big things... Um, transitioning from being a, a very mainstream romance writer to a historical women's fiction writer has been talking to readers about what that shift means. And I think the biggest clue is that romance has the contract with the reader that you have a happily ever after. And I think a couple of readers have been a little nervous about the idea of not having that contract in place. And they should be mm. nervous because there are certain things you can do in historical women's fiction that you can't do in romance just because of that, right? So if there's a happily ever after, you're you're going to be restricted in what can happen to some of those characters. And I did have somebody email me a couple of months ago that said, look, you know, I'm looking forward to your new book, but you have to tell me, does anybody die? And I kind of had to resist the urge to email back and be like, it's set during World War II. I hate to tell you, but a lot of people die. <laughs> like, right. And and I understand the hesitation in some in some ways because it's you get attached to characters, and I think some people can feel really strongly about that, and that can be really scary. But yeah, the book definitely has. Um, It has very strong romantic elements to it in certain parts, Um, and it definitely is romantic, but um, it is a a historical women's fiction rather than a romance. And so I think that that is, is, um, it is a little bit of a different story that I was able to tell because of that. Yeah. And World War II is very popular right now. And um, Weird, I say right? like that because I'm like, I'm not really sure all of a sudden why. Um, do you have any theories as to why it's kind of booming? I don't I know mean, if it's I just have a rich any... era? Or... It's a really rich era. I think there are a lot of stories still to be told. Yes. Um, there's a lot of, I do think that in some ways, for us in the U.S. and the U.K., there's a very clear good side and a very clear bad side. Mm. And I, I, I have heard some theories floated about how, especially during times of political or economic challenge, um, people can really gravitate towards this idea of the good and the bad being very clear and black and white. Now, I do think that, you know, I, and I hope people will, will read this and think, you know, there is gray area in everybody's life, right? People make mistakes. People do things that they regret. People, you know, have support, you know, ideas that they, that they 
uh, come to regret at some point. So I hope it's not quite so black and white. But I think in terms of the the larger narrative that's going on, you know, if you're writing about a British heroine in World War II, and you're a, an Anglo-American author, it's uh, probably pretty clear which side of the, the war you fall on. Um, so I think that's definitely something. And I think also, you know, there's there is something about that idea of I think we do glamorize World War II in a way um, mm-hmm. that I, I certainly have been guilty of in the past. And I think the more and more that I read about it and the more I learn about what it was like, even down to you know rationing on the home front, it was not glamorous. And the things that these people were doing, and a lot of them women especially, were doing to kind of keep life together was really difficult and making some really difficult decisions. Um, but I do think that, you know, there have been there have been movies that have come out, there have been TV shows, you know, it it's sort of popped up again in terms of the cycle of pop culture that that is popular at the time. And and I think there's just a lot of really good World War II based fiction that's being written right now. So it's a it's one of those things where if, if you read it and you find it interesting, it's very easy to find something else that you would be interested in. And that's kind of a self-perpetuating cycle. Do you feel like Americans have romanticized it more than other allies? Um, I think that would be or tough Europeans? to say. It's, it's <laughs> different. I think it's yeah. different. Um, and I'm not... I'm not discounting the American experience at all because it was in some ways just awful. And especially, you know, the, the bombing on Pearl Harbor was terrible and it was a direct attack on U.S. soil. And, and you know, so, but it was different. It was not the relentless bombing of the Blitz. Mm-hmm. It was not the constant. It was more removed. It was more removed. And it was it was also, quite frankly, later in the war. And so, you know, there, there was something, I think, about Britain being the first. Um, but also... I think there absolutely is some glamorization on on our part now here of what happened and what went Mm. on. Um, And I think really the the way to kind of reconcile that and and understand that is to just continue to read and be educated about it and understand that, you know, there are a lot of different stories. There's a, a book on my shelf that's all about it's called The Secret History of the Blitz. Oh. And it's all about the really bad things people did to each other during the Blitz. <laughs> and it's just like people stole, people, you know, killed each other and tried to cover it up by planting the bodies in bomb sites. <gasps> like oh. there are some really awful things that happen and and you realize that there are people who are profiting off of off of the um, off of the bombings and, you know, builders who were who were charging astronomical rates in order to you know replace windows and it people could be awful to each other and so this narrative of you know um the stiff upper lip and everybody coming together and and it was absolutely manufactured and i think that if we don't take a look at that and examine that it can be really dangerous mm-hmm. also. So there are these, there's kind like of... It was a, just a jolly hot chocolate party yeah, in the basement every night Exactly. Or <laughs> Everybody just, you know, something was bombed and then the tea lady came around and the ambulance came around and everything got cleaned up and that's not... Keep calm, That's not what on. happened. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, in a way, it's, it's a testament to British propaganda and the Ministry of Information that they were able to have that myth be so strong that everybody just kind of kept on and carried on and got together and, you know, were, were one, one Britain to together um it's a, it's a testament to them being so good at their jobs that that's how we think everything was um and it really was not oh my gosh um well you know me anything that says secret history on it i'm like in. Oh, yeah. i need to read that <laughs> <laughs> it's like being told it's a soap opera <laughs> yeah oh oh really okay um i wanted to ask you have now written books in victorian mm-hmm. era and now early 20th century or what's next what what would be another historical period that julia kelly would want to tackle is there some other historical era that you're like one day 10 years (laughs) from now i'm going to get to dive into my research oh my goodness well i i have a lot of interest in a lot of different eras um, my father really wants me to write a book about a woman who was sort of a celebrated actress, courtesan, and I believe eventually became uh, married into the aristocracy and became kind of a formidable lady. Um, but it's 18th century and it's not my wheelhouse. Uh, so it would require quite a bit of research. But World War II wasn't my wheel- wheelhouse either. So maybe one of these days. Um 
I would really love to write about um, the early 50s into the early 60s. Um, it's the era my mother grew up in, and it's a really fascinating time here. Um, and you see sort of the, the planting the seed for everything that happened in terms of swinging London and the sexual revolution and massive, massive, I mean, really massive social change. But at the beginning of, of the 50s, it's also sort of the, the worst of austerity um, and all the measures that were in place after the war. And, and I think a lot of people in the U.S. don't realize that you know, rationing is is pretty well known throughout World War Two, but it was worse after the war ended because Britain was producing everything Britain could produce basically went to export to, to pay off its um, war debts. Mm. And so it really was an absolutely brutal time to be here. But I think that it's also a time that um, I've heard a lot of stories about from my family. You know, I have aunts and uncles who have photos of them all in their, you know, the women in their huge dresses going out to the dance halls. And I think in some ways it would be it would be really interesting to explore that and maybe take the story out of London um, and and go somewhere else within the country and kind of um, sink into that a little bit. So um, plus, I like the movies and the music and all the pop culture from the time. So that is really interesting. I was not expecting that. I don't know what I was expecting. (laughs) I'd be curious. (laughs) I know. I'll have to think about that. Um, So just before we move on, if you had a friend who was thinking about writing a historical book, would you help them do research? I I would, especially if that friend had a really great podcast that she had me on a couple of times. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I absolutely would. I I think a lot of people have said, oh, I'd love to write historical, but I I just can't do the research. And the reality is research is getting to read, which is kind of cool. I don't know why it's so intimidating for me. I mean, I was was a liberal arts major in college. I practically had enough credits for another Mm -hmm. major in history. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I can do that. But I don't know. I think I'm just intimidated by the hypothetical reader out there who is going to know more about medieval carpentry than me and call me out. on. (laughs) I think that is inevitable. Um, And I know I've told you about a couple of people who have come at me, um, (laughs) thankfully, privately over email uh, to basically say you're wrong about this thing. And I, you know, I've, I've started actually putting into my author's note, you know, I, I did research. There are things that are in here that are taken out for artistic license, and I apologize if I got anything wrong. Um, but you know, I think it's inevitable, and, it, and the reality is, if somebody reads, if somebody reads your book, and they happen to be a professor of medieval history specializing in crop rotation on monastic <laughs> land, and you're for whatever reason writing about crop rotation on monastic land, I. I say this because this is what the hero in, in the light over London studies, um, he, you know, the, the reality is that they're going to know more than you. And maybe they tell you something that you don't know and you can say thank you and be polite and you can file it away as something you either will or will not use in the future. Uh, but I, my, my thinking is kind of at least they're paying attention, right? Right. Well, I want to move into the book recommendation portion of um, yes. the podcast, which is traditional on women with books. However, now you, Julia Kelly, are also a co-host of your own book podcast. So I'm a little, I'm not sure really how to handle. I mean, are you well, so overwhelmed with book recommendations right now? No. Well, I was just saying I'm in like a blind panic because I wasn't prepared, which is what? great. No, you absolutely, I should have, I should have, I should have known that this was going to come up. We, we don't have to, because I really did think, I'm like, you know, no, so I'd for love those to. who don't know, Julia Kelly is, um, like I said, co-host of her new podcast with her sister, Justine, mm-hmm. and um, the podcast is you're, you're never, never gonna, gonna read, read this. this yes yeah which justine and always makes fun of me because i mess up the name all the time <laughs> i have i have paused a, a few times like is it you are definitely going to read this or are you Absolutely. going to <laughs> never read yeah um and i love the podcast and it actually i do need to talk to you guys because i think or i need to go back in because i think i've listened to it during walks and then going oh what's that book that they recommended i need to go look it up um but y'all do a great job on your website and i'll put that link in my show notes thank you want to look it up but um i every time i'm like there's no way she's 
read all these books have you how's that going (laughs) yeah no so I am plowing my way through Justine's recommendations the format of the show is that I recommend Justine a book she recommends me a book she inevitably doesn't read what I recommend um And then whines about how long the books that I recommend are. She does. Um, <laughs> this book is 600 pages. Big freaking deal, Justine. You read fantasy and all fantasy is like required to be 800 pages long in my mind. Um, she's going to be so annoyed at me. Uh, <laughs> Um, But yeah, so we have gone back and forth, and I think we're actually pretty close to each other in terms of having read each other's recommendations. We've read a couple of your recommendations because you were a special guest, which was very exciting. And um, yeah, it's been really, really fun. And I will say it has forced me out of my reading comfort zone because I, it's pretty safe to say, read almost no fantasy. And Justine is pretty much has... A specialty knowledge in fantasy uh, and sci-fi as well. So I think uh, I think she's been she's been good for me in that respect. And there's you know, she has not recommended a bad book to me so far that I've read. So that's good. I mean, it's it's nice to know that she has taste and I would <laughs> that hope she so. can recognize good books. I would hope. But it so. sounds like you also come from a reading family where very much so takes that recommendation power seriously well it was funny because i got a message from my father today and we've had bookcases built because there were no bookcases in the house that they just moved into and they actually had to go back and get more bookcases built because there weren't (laughs) enough books for enough cases for all the books it's just i think we may may have finally have enough bookshelves for all the books that they own but they're not allowed to buy anymore because then that might tip them over the edge Do you prefer paper or digital books? I don't really know that about you. I have to say I prefer paper, but I'm very happy to read on digital. And a lot of that is tied into a space issue. Um, So I have a lot more space here in London than I did in New York City. But um, at one point, I had a friend come over and she looked around my flat and she said, you know, I'm not worried about you dying alone and not being found. I'm actually worried about you dying because a pile of books falls on you. And then I come and find you in your flat. And I was just like, that's probably going to (laughs) happen. Well, what have you been reading lately or what, what have you been, what would you like to recommend to us today? Well, I, this is, this may be a little out of season, um, but I have been reading a whole bunch of Christmas books because I do, uh, I, this will be the second year, so I can't say I do it every year, but I, I have uh, done in the past a 12 days of Christmas reads. Recommending... Yes, you know what? I just looked up on your website because I thought yeah. I saw something about that. I'm like, oh, when's it's that starting? Because it's really good. <laughs> so it starts on December 3rd, I think, and runs for 12 days. And uh, there's a lot of women's fiction. There's a lot of romance in there. There's a cookbook this year. Mm. And I am wrapping up a um, uh, I'm wrapping up a mystery right now, a classic English mystery. So I'm enjoying that very much. Um, but other than Christmas books, um, I just read... Just to interrupt you, I will put those links in the show notes, too, because even oh, if I release this podcast in January, y'all, go back and look at her site, and then you can bookmark it and get exactly. all of your Christmas books ready. It will not go year. anywhere. It will no. stay there. I will be very happy to uh, to continue hosting that. So, yeah, it's it's been really fun, and I've read a lot of new books, including one I loved by Sarah Morgan um, called The Christmas Sisters. That was a really fun that. one. I just got that. I heard you talking about it, and I just got it, and it's, yeah. I was making a list of the books I have to read for the rest of the year. I really enjoyed it. And it I really, definitely want to get into that. Yeah, it really focused on the sisterly relationship, but it also has a romance element for each of the three sisters, which was really fun to see. And it's set in Scotland, like really snowy highlands. And I just thought, that oh, sounds lovely. <laughs> sounds really good. Yeah, yeah, very Christmassy. Um, okay, sorry, go back to whatever you were No, <laughs> well, I, I just read a really fantastic book called The Heart's Invisible Furies um, by John Boyne and it's about a young man growing up in Ireland who is uh, who is gay and sort of that should be a really sad depressing book and it is sad in parts absolutely but it's also incredibly funny and there are parts of the books that are just just made me absolutely laugh out loud, which I don't usually do while reading. Um, mostly, is it I get, modern or historical? Or? It's historical because it's set starting in 
the 1950s, and it goes okay. all the way through to present day. Is it memoir or fiction? It's fiction, um, but it okay. reads very much like a first-person memoir. Um, very funny, very quirky. I really, I really enjoyed it a lot. It's a long one, though. That's when my sister would actually be allowed to whine about because I think my copy was 730 pages. Oh my gosh, it, that is really long. It's really long, but it absolutely <laughs> flies by for a fictional memoir. I know. <laughs> it just, it's, it's so well written and so. Uh, wry and smart. It's uh, it really it really flies by. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, and um, I think you know what? I'm just going to go off book here. I'm going to these aren't even things I've been reading recently, but I feel like more people okay. need to know about them. So we talked yeah. a little bit about Rosamond Pilcher before. Um, I read The Winter Solstice. Um, last year at Christmas time and I have asked on my Christmas list for another Rosamond Pilcher book because I feel like she's one of those authors who's really lovely to sort of sink into during the winter months. Which There's something really you ask for. I don't know. I've I've give I've left it up to my mom um, okay. because she read a lot of these, especially when they were being released. And so um, I've I've told her I trust her judgment and she can just pick one. Um, do you have a recommendation? I well I love the Shell Seeker September. It's wonderful. Yes. But I think my all time favorite is Coming Home. Okay. I'm, I might ask for Coming Home then, because I think that has been high on her list uh, for a while for me to read. Yeah. So There's a beautiful home in Cornwall. and it's, Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful. Already. I'm in. <laughs> and there's several Christmas scenes and, you know, of course, London Blitz and, oh, it's, I, now, oh. now I need to go get a new copy of that, too. There are Christmas scenes. This is great. I could be themed, and I could keep going with uh Oh, yeah. I, I think people are deflowered at Christmas. <gasps> I don't want to spoil Scandal. it. But, yeah. I don't want to <laughs> spoil it, but somebody's deflowered. <laughs> Love it. Great. You know, but in, but in one of those books, it's like plot point number 52. You know? Yeah, 52 <laughs> of like 300. No, you're absolutely right. It's yeah, not you, like... you, you really run through a lot of those. Um, if, if people are interested in historical women's fiction, I think The Nightingale is really fantastic. Um, I really I really thought that book was wonderful. So that would be a big recommendation. Um, that's uh, Kristen Hanna. And um, I also think The Alice Network is really well done. That's Kate Quinn. That's I another dual timeline. I that one. Yes. I, really I thought about that one that. a lot while I was reading yours. I think they're good companions. I hope so. That would be a huge compliment because I really yeah. I really thought that book was so incredibly well done. Um, I owe you a book actually because oh. you have been uh, asking me to read uh, Chanel Clayton's book for a while. Oh, okay. And I haven't yet, but it's on my Kindle. Yeah. So as soon as I get around the hump with the Christmas books, <laughs> all 12 of them, well, I you think need that's to because next the next one is um, about to, her second in the Cuba series is about I to know. come out, which I have I know, the arc I'm for. I'm excited. And um, I'm probably, sorry, Chanel, I probably won't get to that. I just, okay. Well, you obviously <laughs> you need to somebody to talk to about the you, other book before you read the new book. Yes, yes. You'll understand this, though because I think we talked about it when I was on your podcast about how when you do a book podcast you end up like not getting oh through God. all your books and like I have a whole stack of things that I got maybe like a third or two thirds through and then I had to stop and pick up something else and so I just last night went through my net galley and went through everything my Kindle <laughs> I was like, okay, these are the things I just really want to finish and yes, before yes. the new year starts. So there's just a bunch of like, and it, if I didn't finish them the first time around, I can't recommend them officially. I, I'm really like, I don't want to recommend them to people until I've actually finished it, but I like them a lot. And so I want to go ahead and finish them so I can say officially, oh, yeah. I recommend this now. No, I feel strongly <sighs> about that too. Cause sometimes something will sneak up on you. There's a book, um, God, is it Ann Patchett who wrote Bel Canto? Mm-hmm. Maybe. I, yeah, that sounds right. I love that book and I wish that somebody had told me not to read the epilogue. Oh. Because to me, it just really changed the whole experience of reading it. And I, I have ranted to people about this before, and every one of them have tur has turned around and said, I read it. I really wish I had listened to your advice and didn't read the epilogue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's one of those ones where it just completely changed the book for me, which was really unfortunate. But 
Um, oh, no, yeah. Yeah, it does happen. Um, I just wanted to recommend one last one, and I think this, yes, is, please do. this is a series that is not in fashion right now, but I read it last year, and this was actually one of the things I was reading when sort of the ideas were brewing for The Light Over London. Um, it's Elizabeth Jane Howard's Cazalet Chronicles. Um, the Light Years is the first book, and I don't recommend this to everybody because I think you have to be a particular type of reader to enjoy it. It's so atmospheric and so detailed and there are large portions of these books where people have conversations and they go to the village shop and they buy bolts of fabric and then they drive back and then they have meals and then it tells you what meals they had. And that sounds really, really dull and it's fantastic. <laughs> um, they're really layered family sagas. Uh, so there are four that she wrote and then there's a fifth that she wrote after the fact of, I think, 10 years later. And um, they're, they're all about this, this family that is wealthy enough that they have, you know, the London house and they have, you know, the country house. And, but they're not, they're not peers. They're not members of the aristocracy. They're just, they have a, a, a well, they're well off. They have a good business. And it's sort of about the un, undoing of this family as World War II is creeping up and then World War II hits. And it's sort of what happens to the children as, you know, all these members of the family start getting sent off to war or are, you know, in London during the Blitz and all these different things that are happening, all the interpersonal relationships and kind of things that are said and things that aren't said between husbands and wives. And it's, Wonderful, and I just think if that is if that is the type of book for you, where you just like inhabit a group of people's lives for a little while and really enjoy that family saga um, thing, where sort of things things are creeping along and then something big happens, and then things are creeping along and something big happens, um, those are really wonderful books, and I and I I think they're just fantastic and beautifully written. Interesting. We'll have to check that out. Well, thank you so much for being on today, Julia Kelly. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. Not not many people will let me sit there and talk to them about history for a really long time. So. Oh, well, we'll have you back the next time. The next time you um, start talking about monastic crop rotation. Oh, my God. I'm right? sure. I, I picked the most boring thing that I could think of when I was writing that part of the book, and it, and it worked. It is actually one of the most boring things I can think of. You know, when you just said that, I'm like, I don't think I, I must have skimmed over that because it was so boring. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very, very brief mention of like, are you sure you want to help me with this? And he's like, I, I mean, I specialize in agricultural history of monastic lands. <laughs> Which is so funny because you know what? In The Royal Runaway, when I have two characters and one's trying to bore the other, Thea's trying to bore Nick about history. She mm -hmm. says something about agricultural history. There you go. She tries to pick the most boring subject possible. And we did not, we had not read each other's stories no, when we, we had wrote not. that. No, we had not. Now we're going to insult somebody out there who really loves agricultural history. Sorry. We're really sorry. You will have to show us your ways because we don't get yes, it. Yes, you are invited to come on the podcast and talk about <laughs> corn or beans or something. I don't even know. I, yeah, there'd be so much. Um, well, the next thing coming up for you is a book release in January, but how yeah. can people get in touch with you and hear more about your books? Well, a good way to start is uh, my website, which is juliakellywrites.com, and I have a newsletter sign up there, and that's probably the best way to stay up to date. And it's also the best way to kind of just keep tabs on everything that's going on between books and and all of those things. And then I'm also on you know Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I I'm on Instagram probably more than I should be uh, lurking and, and looking at other people's pretty pictures. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been a really fun um, it's been a really fun run up to the book releasing. Oh, and I I should mention also uh, because otherwise my sister will be cross with me. Uh, but uh, we're also on the um, you should read that you're never going to read. I never get it right. You're never going to read this podcast as well so justine uh i was going to remind people about the <laughs> Lindsay's the better sister yes without I'm even honorary. trying yay exactly well thank you so much for being on yeah absolutely thank you for having me